0: Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Pin Count, the podcast where we go deep into the tech. I'm Douglas Shearer, and I'm here with my co-host, Ian Wallace. Hello. Hi, Ian. Sounds like you're not feeling too well today.
1: Yeah, I've got a bit of a cold, so I'll try not to make any horrendous noises in the direction of the microphone. Yeah, no more than usual, anyway.
0: Okay, cool. Right, we'll get started with some follow-up. Um, given that the audio is going to be amazing this week, we should talk about the audio on episode one.
1: Yeah, basically GarageBand. That's pretty much the end of that. Okay. GarageBand, where did I start? So, it's quite handy to have the the waveform rendered when you're trying to edit it because I can pretty much recognize the shape of me going um in the waveform, but then GarageBand decided to only render half of it, which was a bit annoying. But also it seemed to do something terrible to the audio. Like, I mean, you noticed the quality was worse and there's a bit of an echo from somewhere, not quite sure where. Also, your voice does not get on
0: with MP3 encoding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure we can lay that at someone's feet, I don't think it's mine. Certainly the second episode is a lot better.
1: I say my a wonderful self at 64 kilobits though. Mm,
0: maybe, maybe I'm just too high pitched or something.
1: Yeah. yeah, anyway, moving on, um, you got your letters the wrong way around last time.
0: Yeah, I did, so uh, when we were talking about video stuff last time, I kept saying... HVEC or HVEC, when what I should have been saying is HEVC, which is high efficiency video encoding. Is that right?
1: Yeah. I think what went wrong there is you're getting confused with the air conditioning.
0: Because <laughs> that's HVAC. Really. HVAC, yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah. So the, the other thing I got wrong was saying that HEVC was the sort of group of codecs, but actually that only applies to H264. H264 is just the. MPEG-LA fancy name for each EVC. I'll get it right that time. And then Google's VPN is, is its own thing altogether. An interesting thing there is that Google is actually ending its line of codecs at this point. Another group has taken over the codecs, so we'll no longer see a VP codec from Google starting with VP10. It might not even be called VP10. Another thing I got slightly wrong was the decrease in bit rate required to get the same perceived audio quality. With VP9 and H.264, it's actually 50%. So you get a 50% reduction in file size bandwidth across the network to get the same perceived quality at the other end. I mean, that's that's kind of incredible. And then the last thing there was iPhone 6S and 6S Plus have H.265 hardware support. Apple used this for FaceTime. So both ends of the conversation I've got, Apple's latest handsets, they'll use H265.
1: I thought that came in in the 6. I thought they had it earlier, but again, only for specific applications.
0: Even in the latest phones, it's not publicised, although there was talk about, I think it's Plex. I'll put a link to a Reddit thread. Plex supposedly will play H265 on the latest handsets without reencoding it. And there seemed to be a bit of a chat about whether it covered the older ones as well, but I don't think there was anything conclusive there. So the hardware is there, Apple just aren't talking about it and aren't officially making it available in APIs.
1: Okay, because that's that's quite unusual. Apple are actually lagging behind there, because like, we went and looked at all the Snapdragon details, and even down to quite low-end Snapdragons, they have built-in hardware support. And I kind of I saw that he would put that in the show notes, and I kind of went into a bit of a rabbit hole looking Media MediaTek SOCs, because they're appearing in Uh, a lot of low-end devices now so in particular the 4th gen Moto E that has just come out in the UK which is about £100 it's got a MediaTek SoC and unfortunately I didn't actually get an answer to the question because I got massively distracted by this crazy new MediaTek thing that they've released I'll put a link in the show notes there but it's The dev board's called a MediaTek X20 and I've forgotten the name of the chip, but it doesn't really matter. It's a string of numbers that nobody cares about. But the crazy thing about this is it's like the complete opposite approach to Apple's SoC approach. Okay, so what you've got is, so you you know the kind of arm big little thing where you have some deep pipeline fast cores that are very power consuming, but very quick. And then you have some little cores
0: that are very power efficient and so on, yeah? Yeah, so it's a hardware approach to, Scaling the core up and down in software and in power usage.
1: Yeah, and there's a, there's a lot of cunning stuff doing because what do you do with your caches when you swap tasks from one CPU to another and all that sort of thing? This MediaTek thing is mental. It's got a dual core big uh, like a A73 that's doing two and a half gigahertz or whatever, and then it's got a quad core A53 little set of little cores, uh, which is again you know the sort of normal thing you expect. Then it's got another quad core A53. Like, legitimately 10 cores on this SOC. I'm
0: having a quick look at the link now. It's a tiny little thing. There's, like, three USB headers hanging off it and a few other things. It looks like a SSD slot and then some pinouts for, I guess, anything you want being a development board. But, yeah, it's... you You can see the three,
1: four chips on there. They're just support chips you're looking at there. That's the dev board. This is a single chip for going in a phone with two quad cores and one dual core within it in the SOC.
0: Oh, oh yeah, you're right. I see how it's describing the package itself and not the yeah. actual board. Oh wow. It's
1: mental. Anyway, I looked it through to the order page because I kind of went off on, ooh, this is a cool thing that I'll do absolutely nothing with that I could order but then it's all in Chinese so I got defeated. <sighs> if anyone that reads Chinese wants to send me one then email us at wrongontheinternet at pinkcountpoddesk.com But it's quite interesting. It, it supports HEVC. Uh, I found that out. does 4K. does everything really. It's a Bit of an insane thing. It's got a Mali t 880 in it, which is like the second highest end ARM Mali GPU core, so it's pretty pretty beefy.
0: Mm. So, you were saying about Apple getting a bit behind there. When age 264 was just sort of becoming a thing, Apple were one of the first big backers of that. I think it was 2005, maybe 2006, they had a a big announcement about a new version of GarageBand, a new version of Final Cut that supported H.264, and I think they also had hardware support in the chips for the first time at the time they would have been using G4s. Yeah, G4, G5 chips, and they got hardware support there. Um, so maybe they're just waiting until all their platforms support H.265. And then... Yeah,
1: or, or whoever enjoyed video codecs, Apple left, right? They still don't properly support QuickSync and Intel CPUs for anything other than FaceTime video.
0: Perhaps that's—I mean—we've got a whole future topic about this, but perhaps that's just a case of Apple doesn't feel the quality's high enough for most of their applications.
1: Yeah, it could be, but uh, I don't know. So, moving on in the follow-up, uh, we're talking about this rumored uh, Pascal Titan P. I
0: think at this point, this isn't a follow-up; this is a new topic.
1: <laughs> ah, it's, it's kind of follow-up. We mentioned this before. Okay. Anyway, so they've they've released a new Titan, and uh, they've called it the Titan X.
0: So the same as the last one? The same as the last one. Right.
1: Massive sigh. That's super helpful for googling for you know benchmarks or prices or anything at
0: all. So I've seen a few people calling it the Titan XP just to separate it out to give it a different name when they're talking about it on Twitter and the like. Maybe that'll become like the standard nomenclature for it.
1: Yeah, another interesting naming thing about it, other than the fact that it's completely uninteresting, they called it the same thing. It's not actually quite the same thing. It's not a G-Force. Did you notice this?
0: Yeah, I noticed GeForce was missing from the name, but does that mean they're sort of targeting it at a different market in the gaming market? Or
1: Yeah, I mean, they have explicitly said that they're targeting it as a single precision and integer compute card. If you remember back, I was speculating that it might have a good double performance, but it doesn't, sadly. It's not a cut-down Tesla chip. It's not a cut-down GP100. It's a beefed-up GP104. They're calling it a GP102 but that means it gets the uh, not doesn't have the right units for
0: double precision computing it's still 164th or whatever it's
1: pretty awful for
0: double precision so to get the double precision we're still going to have to wait for the K series cards i think they're sort of high end compute cards are
1: uh no the K series are the well the K series is the the Kepler quadros they were the last ones that were Reasonably priced and good at uh, double precision. It's the Tesla's. It'll be the. They'll probably be called M something, or well, they've called it P one hundred for the top end one. Okay. The thing that amazed me about this chip is it's an absolutely enormous chip. It's got twelve billion transistors on it. That's
0: insane. Yeah, pretty sizable piece of silicon. That's nearly
1: enough that we could have. We could have two each. (laughs) I I mean, I mean, two transistors each for every single person on the planet. Yeah. (laughs) It's crazy. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's yeah, it's a thousand dollars or twelve hundred dollars or whatever, but that's quite cheap for twelve billion things.
0: Yeah, I mean, do you think the market's big enough for this? Like, I know you use the well, what is now the previous generation of Titan X. Would you use the new generation?
1: Um, actually, if I didn't have Titan Xs already, then maybe. But uh, the thing, the thing is, for for my purposes. Hello. I mean, okay, I've got a machine with a pair of Titans, I've obviously got money to spend on this sort of thing, but this isn't any real sort of upgrade. It's a bit faster, but it doesn't give me any new capability. Okay. Because it's still only 12 gigs of RAM. Bigger RAM would let me train bigger models and do different things, whereas this is just faster. I mean, it's, the numbers say it's half again as fast, but.
0: Yeah. But you complain about spending a lot of time waiting for experiments to run. You know, you could
1: have less spare time. Yeah, what I need to solve that problem though is just more GPUs. Okay, not necessarily faster ones. So I noticed you put a comment in here. What tops int eight? I'm going to have to horn that out. I think maybe what they're talking about here is instead of flops, floating point operations per second, they're just saying trillions of operations per second. And this is eight bit integer compute, and that's interesting because for explicitly for deep learning, you can get away with a lot of what is effectively noise introduced as a result of imprecise computation yep. in deep learning. And a lot of people are making a lot of progress in using 8-bit integers for a lot of the internal maths. And that's why this is interesting because suddenly you get huge throughput increases. I mean, this thing goes up from 11 to 44 uh, trillion operations per second. So if you could accept a little bit of loss of precision, it can run massively faster because you're packing four lots of eight into every 32.
0: Have they aimed the feature set then at the direction things are going in the deep learning space? Like drop in... Well, not dropping, but not having a great increase in double uh, precision computation, but then giving a whole pile of more uh, 8-bit integer.
1: Yeah, and this is interesting because this is kind of a a driver from both ends because on one hand at this sort of big end for training my models, I'd rather have 44 trillion operations a second rather than 11, four times as many because then I can train on more data quicker and train larger models because they pack tighter into memory. So that's good from that point of view. But then at the deployment side, if I have a model that works well on 8-bit integers, this is much more efficient and power and memory friendly for the mobile space. Okay. okay. Again, to call back to episode one where I was talking about the uh, metal performance shaders, I noticed when they were specifying the byte arrangement of the formats of the images, which you can pass into the convolution filters. And This is getting properly niche now. But I was looking at how they were, how they handled the data types and you have to uh, pack the pixels in in a bit of a funny way. I did the maths and I was like, oh, that's interesting, because if you pack them in this way, then if they're splitting into 8-bit integers under the hood somewhere at some point, then this would work very nicely because the data would already be in the right format. Okay. So, basically, they've structured the API and data structures that if they were moving to 8-bit integer compute for the implementation of the MPS APIs in the future, then Apple would already be, you know, they're skating to where the puck is to use a awful American term.
0: Well, you can let us know how the new Tesla XP runs when you get a pair of them. Uh, not, I don't have anything upcoming that's likely to get me a pair, sadly. <laughs> okay, so next up we've got more silicon, but this time it's not going to appear for another two years. It's Intel's 10 nanometer shrink of what is going to be soon Canon Lake, but to the 10 nanometer. I'm going to say this whole bit again.
1: I'm just going to put horns of wearing and keep it all in. <laughs> Now I'm going to cut you doing this properly. Just have the silly
0: <laughs> bit. It's funny. So we're we're back in the uh, the stupid name section. Intel's Cannon Lake is going to be shrunk to ten nanometers, and they're going to call it Coffee Lake, which I think is a tremendously stupid name. Yeah,
1: I've not actually read much about this uh, because I've been ill. So you can you're just going to have to tell me all about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's not much information out there. This is one of these things where someone's seen something on us on the the corner of a slide and an Intel presentation. And basically, it's it's just a, sh- a shrink of an upcoming process. They're talking about six cores becoming the mainstream desktop chip. So instead of just now, it's mostly four cores, I- i5, uh, i7. Six cores going to become the standard. I mean, apart from the name, my issue with this is, We've still got the same broken software we had 10 years ago, where it doesn't really use two cores very well for most tasks. So I'm just wondering, six cores in 2018, should we not just skip six cores, fix the software and go straight to 600?
1: Well, I am. You know, that's that's what we're doing with the GPU computers, 1300 cores per card. So... You know, we we have already. Yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, like video encoders a you know you can use as many cores as you can give them. If you're writing something with um, Erlang or any number of functional programming languages and runtime, they let you use multiple cores. Consumer software just doesn't. Well,
1: it doesn't all naturally fit into. It. I mean, video encoding does because a lot of uh, image encoding based stuff tends to be tile based. So you're you're splitting the the picture up into tiles and you can compute them all in parallel. Whereas if you're rendering a web page where you've got to parse um, a load of XML effectively and then do something with it, you kind of have to do that serially, not parallel.
0: Yeah, lots of uh, JavaScript parsing and computation, um, compilation even, it happens single-threaded. I know that um, both Chrome and Safari, their engines, have made great progress in making that multi-threaded, but still mostly it's a single-threaded task that benefits from a single really fast core.
1: So, yeah, I guess you're arguing that we should find good ways to parallelize that.
0: Yeah, I mean, just, yeah, most people look at webpages, they don't encode video.
1: So, I mean, getting back to the encoding thing you've put in here, are software encoders relevant? I mean, is is this you thinking, well, if everyone's consuming all their content on mobile devices, and as we've discussed at length, they've all got hardware support for all these things, then uh, why bother with the software?
0: Encoders are a special thing. You were talking earlier on about Intel's Quick Sync. One of the things about hardware encoders is... Once you put them in silicon, you're stuck with whatever profiles they support. Now, H264 over its lifetime got several, you would call them spec additions or versions. They added extra profiles as, you know, higher color depth content came on board, as more powerful devices came on board, you know, pieces of the spec that would cover that. The other thing is, a hardware encoder tends to, they tend to aim for a a time span, you know, that the video comes in at one end and they want it to go out the other end within a certain number of, you know, microseconds or milliseconds.
1: Are you arguing against yourself here? I I thought your position was software coders are irrelevant and it should all be in hardware.
0: No, no, my position is that software encoders are very relevant. Because one of the things is if you use um, X264 and you use, say, the very slow preset... One of the things it does is it spends a lot of time searching for what is the best way to compress a certain piece of video. Very slow quite often, even on a BV machine runs at less than real-time play speed for, what, for the video that is compressing. But you get amazing levels of compression and quality for a given bit rate at the other end.
1: Okay, so is this why Intel are developing these crazy card things you were telling me about?
0: Yeah, so after after last week we talked about the Intel Xeon E3 1500 V5s, um, we did a little bit of post-show research. And Intel make what I can only really describe as an add-on card for servers that contains three Xeon E3 I think it was V3 and V4 processors, and you could put four of them in a single server, so you could have another 12 CPUs in your server, but they were purely for video encoding. That was the target market, and they only, they only fitted a very small number of servers. See, yeah, I had a quick look at the,
1: the specs you sent me, and they're really weird things, because it's basically an add-on card that's got some DIMM slots and some CPUs on it and even space for a flash drive to be connected up. Then you access it through kind of virtualization so hypervisor and so on. So you're running like a whole computer in your computer times, you know, 12 or whatever.
0: Yeah, it's little blade servers that fit in a regular server box that is already actually a server rather than just being a blade enclosure.
1: You're a dog, I heard you like servers. Yeah. I don't know, I think these are pretty cool. I think I just like computers in unusual places and a computer in a computer is an unusual place.
0: Yeah, these look like a, yet another special product that's been requested by someone. Facebook or, or Google or anyone who does lots of real-time video and wants it done quickly. But in this case, it looks like instead of using the quick Sync, part of the processors, even though some of the supported processors do have it, they're actually looking to use each, ser- each chip, each CPU covers a stream and might be using something like X264 where they want slightly higher quality.
1: It's in- interesting things, all these crazy uh, specific use server things.
0: Yeah, I'd l- I'd love to get a hold of one of these cars and just see what's possible. I think there was only one version of CentOS ran on it. It was very, very, very specific tooling. It, it's quite limited in release, and we'll be unlikely to see them on eBay for maybe five or six years.
1: Yeah, so if anyone's got one spare, you know our email address. <laughs> so, what else are we talking about this week? We've got about ten minutes left, I guess.
0: Okay, so we we have this um, sort of. Uh, not ongoing topic, but we talk about specific silicon for things, and there is other ways to go around completing tasks without actually doing the the masking and all the design and stuff designed for, or to get specific silicon. There's FPGAs and the other thing that I'm now forgetting. ASICs.
1: Yeah. For bonus point, what does FPGA
0: and ASIC stand for? So yeah, FPGA is Field Programmable gatory.
1: Good, good. And without Googling ASIC?
0: No, I've no idea what
1: ASIC is. <laughs> it's uh, it's pretty obvious, he says. It's application-specific integrated
0: circuit. Okay. So now I can maybe say what the difference is between them, and if you've looked into this, you can obviously correct this. So FPGA is basically, I've seen these as development boards you can get, you can plug into your, your PC at your desk, you can set them up as a circuit to do specific things, and then you can deploy them whereas ASICs, ASICs require some work in a lab somewhere, and once they're set, that's it.
1: Yeah, that's pretty much it. An obvious question might be, why is an ASIC not a CPU? Because it's not general purpose. It's application-specific. The clue's in the name. Yeah,
0: that's the, that's the point of all these things. It's, yeah, get, getting something application-specific that might have lower power envelope to do a specific task.
1: Yeah, and FPGAs, it's not just about having a dev board in your machine. It's about very where you want specific silicon to do something and you have very low production volumes. So certainly uh, in the past, this is how they've spun up new generations of consoles. You'll find in, like, for example, very early PlayStations have some FPGAs implementing some of the DSP functions and so on. And then in later generations, they spin up their production line for producing the ASICs and then they swap in the ASICs instead, which are much cheaper, and then the cost of the console can come down.
0: So the only... Um, sort of contact I've had with FPGAs and ASICs is for Bitcoin mining. There was a while where CPUs were the thing, and then there was a while where GPUs were the thing, and then it became FPGAs. Um, and then once people got to ASICs, that was the only way to do it because it was impossible to keep up with uh, the mining speed for a given amount of power out of a wall outlet. Um, ASICs just took over everything.
1: Uh, kind of the key thing about these approaches are They're good for things that you cannot do well on a CPU, because that's why, if you can do them well on a CPU, you wouldn't need dedicated circuitry. Basically, that means you've got a lot of parallelization. So I see you've put in the show notes here, FPGA for TensorFlow, and uh, I have to say you're wrong, just before anyone else writes in. So this is Google has talked in a few interviews and articles and places about how they're doing custom chips for TensorFlow, their deep learning framework. And it's not FPGAs, actually. It's they've said it's ASICs, it's specific circuitry. Okay. okay. And actually, from what the what little information they've released, most of which is not technical at all, I think wired articles rather than anything in depth. It seems more like they're probably using repurposed GPU designs. So, so using
0: older designs at a license.
1: Well, maybe not older designs, but it, it sounds a lot like their architecture is. Very GPU-like, but really dedicated towards 8-bit integer compute. Okay. So the interesting problem that all these types of things have is getting the data in and out fast enough. So this is the big problem with FPGAs in particular. They, because they're sort of reprogrammable hardware, it's not dedicated for a specific purpose. They generally can't hit the high clock rates that you can on a CPU. Okay. Uh, much, much lower. So hundreds of megahertz rather than gigahertz. So you really need to get a huge sort of parallelization speed up to to, uh, cope for the decrease in serial
0: processing ability. So with an FPGA, you might have lots of sort of identical pre-built, not pre-built, that's not the word I'm looking for, circuits that are ready to be set up, but there's lots of them, and you can slice them up and make lots of small things you want to do and then use them all together.
1: Yeah, but then your problem is going to be the bus to get the data in and out fast enough that if you can process it so there's all kinds of interesting trade-offs here and they are well suited for these highly paralyzable tasks so that's why as well as this you've put in a link here about using FPGAs for robot arm path calculations I've not actually followed your link here to just uh, fact check you and if it's an FPGA or an ASIC but I would imagine it is an FPGA in this case and the reason that that is something you want to paralyze lots is when you're doing motion planning the typical way that you do motion planning is you generate many candidate trajectories and then you down select from them somehow, either using a heuristic or some additional information about the world that is expensive to compute. So, for example, if you're computing the uh, intersection of an arm with uh, the arm's path with objects and environment, and doing the kinematic calculations to calculate how all the joints of the arm move, this is very computationally expensive.
0: So real-time follow-up is indeed an FPGA they're using. Parallelization is obviously the key feature of this, because they were able to see a reduction in time of calculation of a thousand compared to using a sort of high-end um, Intel and E5.
1: Calculation of this, the arm path planning stuff, really is super computationally intensive.
0: Okay, that sounds good. Um so I think that's all for this week. You can find me at at Douglas F Shearer on Twitter and Ian at, at the underscore accidental on Twitter also. If we've been particularly wrong and you need to correct us, perhaps with API documentation links or some blueprints, email us at wrong on the internet at pincountpodcast.com. We'll see you next week.
1: I think that went quite well this week, despite
0: uh Yeah. I just, I had lots of difficulty remembering words. I think we're a bit short. Yeah, but then other times have been like 32, 34 minutes, so about half an hour is what we want.
1: Oh yeah, so you said you'd done an experiment. Tell me about your experiment. Okay, so
0: last week we joked about um, perhaps pitch shifting and um, saying, hey sir, yeah. oh, there goes my phone. So it was outside the range of hearing, but could still set off a phone. Unfortunately, from my brief experiment earlier on using Audacity, that doesn't work. As soon as you shift it much past even just a standard human voice where you start to sound like Perky the pig, um, it doesn't work at all. So obviously when you train it with the, the phrase that brings up your Apple digital assistant... Uh, it picks your voice and that's why they make you say it over and over a few times. It's not so much training you, it's training it and whatever hardware means it uses to listen all the time and it's very specific to you.
1: So if I'd actually thought about this, I could have realised this was probably the case because they probably do the speech recognition by tracking frequencies and changes in frequency rather than anything else because you want to separate the volume and levels of background noise might all be different and there might be additional frequencies present in uh, what it's recording yep. so so for example if there's a lot of background noise you're driving along in a car there's extra frequencies there but the frequencies that make up the words are still there Okay. so they'll be doing some sort of transform into the frequency space and then doing their identification on that I'd imagine
0: yeah I mean anecdotally iOS 10 seems a lot more sensitive it has a lot more false positives um, but maybe that's just something they're working on or changing how are you getting on with iOS 10? Um, it mostly seems good. I mean, the usual niggles with running a beta. The, you know, the the usual things that stop me recommending it to other people, like certain apps don't work. Like in in YouTube, after you've done a search, like the search bar just disappears completely, and you need to quit the app and you know get it, you know, open it again to get the search bar back. Um, oh, the
1: quality of Google apps on iOS recently not good, is it?
0: Um, I do think. From using Android apps, I definitely think there's a uh, Google's Android apps. I think Google makes nicer iOS apps than they do Android apps, and I keep seeing. Have
1: you tried? Have you tried pasting a link into Google Docs on iOS?
0: Google Docs altogether is a special hell. I mean, we discussed earlier this week moving our show notes that we used to record away from Google Docs, just because I was getting fed up with dealing with indentation on their outlines. Um, I've don't use it on an iOS device at all. I only use it on desktop just because I know it's a pain on iOS.
1: So if anyone's got a recommendation for a good collaborative markdown editor and also happens to listen to the end of this uh, podcast, then uh, please send them in.
0: Maybe just using
1: a shared Dropbox folder. and uh... Yeah,
0: I, th- I, th- I think that's probably the way to go for that. Just keep it simple. I mean, it's not like we do thousands of edits a minute or anything, Then it's just you and me. So
1: As I was thinking we should probably get off... GPUs and deep learning for a change and add some extra stuff in yeah
0: so we've got lots of oh, we've got um, a password management topic which I guess leads into Doug's two part security and backup conference um, ooh I just thought actually
1: yeah I'm not going to say any more than that in case I can't arrange it or it's uh, not possible for various reasons but it might be possible and we've
0: also got on the topic list reminiscing about old PCs Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, it's gonna be a great it's gonna be a lot of fun. Some sort of background stuff about how we've gone about making the podcast. I mean we've not talked about like our website is open source. So all our tools are available for people to see. Stuff about displays, we're all big fans of that.
1: Oh well, you say you're big fans, you your single twenty three inch display at ten eighty p or whatever it is. It's twelve hundred,
0: I think you'll find. Ah dearie. <laughs> dearie. <me. laughs> I even bought a second one earlier this year. That's how good it is. That's how much I like it. Uh, Just in time for it to be super outdated by Thunderbolt 9 or whatever's next. Yeah,
1: we should talk about SSDs as well. Yeah,
0: that's definitely a topic.
1: 5G as well, baby.
0: Yeah, that may be interesting, because I don't see much about that apart from governments talking about how they might deal with uh, the Spectrum licensing, which always seems to be the issue every time a new generation comes around.
1: Oh yeah, and if we ever get enough listeners to make this fun for uh, more than one other person... We should do a. I've got a pin count pub quiz topic in here where boo we can run a little quiz.
0: And be a, quite The special prize for anyone who gets any of the questions right.
1: Without googling,
0: yeah. I have to be honest,
1: I've only got one question in there so far, but it's, it's particularly special. So if you know anything about how you measure how many cash misses you have on an IBM Blue Gene, then you're you're in for a treat.
0: Yeah, and if you listen this far, you've got a, you can get started now.